Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through the end of that chapter and then all of chapter 2 together this morning. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rules of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and <clears throat> and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, I will say at the outset that uh, I will not be taking questions this morning, no matter who they come from. Uh, we had enough of that last night. Uh, glad to go back and revisit this passage And uh, last time we began to unpack here these seven different labels or titles or designations that were given to the Christ child in this very short passage of Scripture. There's not really uh, that many verses here that we're looking at. And all of them are foundational to understanding the person 
and the work of Jesus. Uh, And they would have been just as formative for Jesus as they ought to be for us today. If if you were to go back to the account of of Genesis, we know that human beings are not uh, cosmic accidents. For whatever reason, I'm not advancing here. So I may need somebody to push the next slide. Push. Thank you. And, uh, and I'll tell you if I need the next one. Uh, but it, it, we go back to the book of Genesis and we get informed by reading the Genesis account about what it means to be a human being, even though that's a completely uh, a concept that's up for grabs in today's society. Uh, just this past week, I know there was a, a major article in the New York Times uh, asking the question, do we know what it means to be human? Well, without the book of Genesis, no, we don't. That stuff is left up for grabs. But because of the book of Genesis, we know that we're not cosmic accidents, that we're a special creation from God, that we were made in his image, that we're rational and self-aware and holy and morally responsible the way we were made and and made to be God's vice regents over all of creation. And so it is from his childhood on, it would have been Mary and Joseph's responsibility to educate Jesus on the very facts that we're investigating here. Uh, Last week, we heard from Ben Zwickel about the New City Catechism that they're going to be doing in Sunday school. And, uh, And what's the purpose of such a thing? For those of you who may be a little skittish about a term like catechism, it's simple. It's simply a method of learning through questions and answers. And so this catechism begins with, how would somebody like to hit that button? Thank you. I'm just going to point to you every time. You're just going to hit the slide, okay? So you've got to keep your eye on me. Um, <clears throat> what's that? Okay, I'll keep our eye on it. Uh, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to begin to formulate for young minds in our Sunday school who they are and what life is all about. The idea is to build into them from the earliest ages a sense of who and what they are in God's universe. So imagine being asked or tasked with having to do that for the incarnate Son of God, where would you start? As as the father, as Joseph was to to, um, Jesus, how do you start to build in him a sense of who he is and what he's supposed to be? Where does that even begin? I don't know about you, most of us at one time or another probably asked our parents why they named us what they did. Um, some of you may not want to know. I don't know. But was it in honor of some family member? Was it simply because they liked the sound of it? I've seen a lot of those in the last few years because it's trendy. You know, we go through times when every, every little girl is named something and every little boy is named something else and it goes on. Was it after a character trait they hoped that you would manifest? Or... Or does it have ethnic importance? It's a reasonable question to ask. When I asked my dad why he named me Reed, he said it was because he read it in a comic book and he liked the sound of it. So much for, so much for noble purposes. That was it. My middle name, however, Alan, is named for a boss of his at Kodak who my dad really liked, and this boss had taken my dad under his wing, and so he gave me his middle name. But when Jesus would get to the age that he might ask why he was named Jesus, and as the custom was then, that he wasn't named after somebody in the family, thank you very much, appreciate that, I would love to hear that discussion. Can you imagine Jesus saying to his dad, why did you name me Jesus? We don't have any relatives named Jesus, and that's, that's what goes on around here. And so Joseph would have to sit down at some point and say, well, son, uh, we need to have a discussion 
we need to talk. Let me tell you about uh, your mom's relatives, about Elizabeth and Zechariah and about your cousin John and, and his own amazing birth. And, and now let me tell you some pretty amazing stuff, how an angel spoke to me and told me that I was supposed to give you the name Jesus. And not only did he tell me what your name was supposed to be, he told me why you were to be given that name. Because you were going to save your people from their sins. She will bear a son. This is what the angel told Joseph. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Man, what I would give to be a fly on the wall for where this conversation went after that. I mean, what do you, I don't know how old Jesus might have been. How much of this is he going to be able to take in? You know, he's, he's not like, you know, the cartoons. You know, when I was growing up, you had, you had the Flintstones. And then you had the next generation, which was Bam Bam and Pebbles. Uh, and the thing about Bam Bam was that he was, he was like this little baby, but he had all this strength, like a, like a huge human being. And so we get the picture that Jesus was kind of like, like he came out of the womb, you know, in a, in a robe and already with a crown on his head. And he was fully aware of who he was, just as we heard last night. No, he was just an ordinary baby. And he had to learn who he was. He had to learn that from the scriptures but he especially had to learn it from his mom and dad. So Joseph would have to go on. Okay, uh, let me tell you, this is what an angel told me about you, son, but there's more. You need to know that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by by the prophet, that behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What's a little boy supposed to do with that? How's he going to reason through that? And, and surely his knowledge is going to have to increase over time. And as if those things aren't enough, son, shortly after you were born, we were visited by some dignitaries who came from the Far East. And they brought gifts to you. They brought gold and they brought frankincense and they brought myrrh and they told us that when they were looking for you, they went to King Herod and asked about you. And this is the question they asked. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now what's he do with that? You've just told me my name is Jesus because... I'm supposed to save my people from their sins, that, that I'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, and that I'm supposed to be king of the Jews? My imagination pictures something like this going forward. Now, obviously, this is a lot to digest. I understand that. As your dad, this is a ton to lay on you, and we're going to have to think long and hard about it all. We're going to have to work through all this, but while we're on the subject... I may as well go ahead and tell you everything. Let me just, let me just spill the whole deal. I remember when my, my dad came to uh, us, uh, us older siblings, and told us that my mom was with child for Scott. At my advanced age and lack of understanding of certain mechanics, my response to my father was, does she know? Um, <laughs> And I was dealing with normal stuff. I I can't imagine where this was all going. So for Jesus and Joseph and Mary, life would just now get very, very complex. How would they begin to take all this in? All three of them, to get the rest of the family. We know by the time the story's done, Jesus has four brothers and two sisters. What do they tell the rest of the kids? And, And then how do the rest of the kids treat him? You know, did did they walk around and guard him everywhere he went? Was he allowed to go out and play with the other kids and and fall down and get hurt? Or what what went on? As for them, I don't know. We can only guess. The bigger question is what we need to wrestle with about who we know Jesus is. Just kind of going back to last week, we have to remember that he came to redeem us and he came to reconcile us to God the Father and he 
came to reign over us. And, and there the question as we ended last week was how do we respond to the revelation that Jesus is Jesus because he was sent to redeem us from our sins, because he was sent to reconcile us to the Father and because he was sent to reign over us as our God. Now if those things were the only things we needed to wrestle with where we ended last week, that would be enough. But the text that we've had read for us goes on to point out four more things that we want to take a quick look at this morning. And they're central to Christmas and to the whole concept of the incarnation. So as we come to the fourth designation given in this passage, it comes from a very unlikely source. It comes from Herod, the king. Let me go back and read it, Matthew 2. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Jesus, Emmanuel, King of the Jews, the Christ. It's interesting, he made that leap. They said, where's he that was born King of the Jews? And he says, I want to find out where the Christ was born. When I was younger, it used to be sort of a joke to imagine that some people thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. Uh, of course, they didn't have last names the way we have last names uh, back then. But the older I got, the more I realized that the way that he's addressed in our English Bibles as Jesus Christ lends itself to that perception that maybe that was his name. And especially for those not familiar with Scripture and those not familiar with the term Christ. So if this was or is you, don't feel bad. You were in very good company. But in the ESV, which I'm preaching from this morning, Jesus Christ, as that phrase, appears 139 times. It's just the way you and I are used to seeing it, Jesus Christ. But if you read carefully, you'll notice that nearly 90 times the order is reversed. He isn't referred to as Jesus Christ, but as Christ Jesus. Now, you wouldn't do that with a proper name. I wouldn't refer to Telex Greg. I'd refer to Greg Telex. But I might refer to Greg the Telex because he's the only Telex I know. The Telex whose name is Greg. I might be able to use it in that way. If you were referring to Abraham Lincoln, you would never say Lincoln president. But you would say President Lincoln or Mr. Lincoln the president. And that's the way it is in the original. So if you were a Greek speaker, when you were reading your Bible, Jesus the Christ or Christ Jesus is not simply Jesus Christ like we have it, but the, the, the definite article would be in front of that. That would be implied by the grammar. And that's a clue to understanding this, uh, look, make us look closely at the text and then see how it's brought out in other passages. So let me go back again. Note Herod's words again. Uh, that Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You see the definite article there. Herod asked where the Christ was to be born, not just Christ as though it was his name, but the Christ. And later in Matthew 11, John heard about the deeds of the Christ and he states it that way. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am or who do people think that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to which Jesus responds um, that he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So about 50 times in the New Testament, the definite article is used so that we, we get the message. Christ Jesus, um, his title was the Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean anything to anybody anymore? 
And for us, it takes a little bit of digging. But in Jesus' day, it was common knowledge. Nobody would have missed it. Because the word Christ simply means anointed. He is the Christ because he is the anointed one. Many times in in the Old Testament, when, when a person or a thing was set apart for a unique purpose for God, then it was anointed with oil. Um, Oil was either rubbed on it or poured on it in some way, and the Greek word for anointing was the Greek word creo. That's where we get the word Christ from. So when God appointed a king, the king was anointed with oil to signify that he had been set apart by God for that particular work and had special gifts and graces in order to carry it out. And the same was true of the priests. When they were installed in office, they were also anointed. Exodus and Leviticus demonstrates this over and over. And then there was a third kind of person who was anointed this way besides kings and priests, prophets. And when prophets were set apart to deliver God's word, they were anointed to the office. And so by Jesus' time, The word came to be associated especially with the Jewish Messiah who was to come and be God's anointed leader over his people, their king. We've already seen that designation of him for last time, but now we get the full picture for in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, yes, he comes as God's king for his people, but he is also our great prophet. Amazing. Now, again, this is all having to be explained by Jesus' dad. He's got he's to unpack all this for him. Uh, you remember, we even looked at it a little bit last night in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. In other words, he's the prophet to end all prophets for he's the very word of God himself. Today, you get somebody standing up and saying, I'm a prophet of God, tell him to go buy coffee. Jesus is the last prophet, the great prophet, the prophet to end all prophets. In the sense that we can speak forth the word of God, yes, lots of prophecy. In the sense that we're to sit down and and divine future events, Jesus is the last prophet. It doesn't mean God can't reveal certain things at certain times, but that office was fulfilled in him. It doesn't function the same anymore. And not only that, he's our great high priest. He was anointed to be the king. He was anointed to be the prophet. He was anointed to be the priest and since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession the Christ he is our king our great high priest and our prophet and Jesus you're going to have to fulfill all these offices this is what you've been born for you are the Christ what a role he was anointed to take on to be God's anointed king over us and to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament priests and priesthood foreshadowed by offering up himself as the spotless lamb of God on our behalf. So he is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is the king. He is the Christ. And then he is the shepherd. I love this one. We go back to our text to see how this person and work of Jesus are fleshed out even more for us in this exchange between King Herod and the wise men and the Jewish scholars that Herod calls upon. Let me go back to Matthew 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What a wonderful designation this is. Shepherd. The shepherd concept is replete 
throughout the Old Testament. And it gets taken up by Jesus himself in the Gospels. And he makes his relationship to us all really begin to blossom when we understand the nature of his being our shepherd. The author of the Hebrews will call Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the eternal covenant. And Peter, interestingly enough, will call his way of describing what our salvation is is that we return to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And he goes on to note how it is that that when the chief shepherd appears, he'll receive the unfading crown of glory. But i got to tell you, it's in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Isaiah about the coming Messiah that we get just exceedingly lovely intimations about what his shepherding is all about. Let me go back and look at a few of those. Ezekiel 34 As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Or I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down. Or I, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Or this out of Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a picture this is of Jesus. Go back and think about this for a second. How is it that you came to Christ if you're a Christian here today? Because as our first text said, the shepherd sought you out. You didn't stumble into the fold. Christ came and found you. And where did he find you? Scattered and bound in your sin and blind and thinking about anything else. But he came and he sought you and he found you. And then he takes you up in his arms and says, I will care for your soul till not only the day you die, but on into eternity. I'll bear you up. It's true that that we often go through all kinds of woes and difficulties and cares and concerns and there are times when we cannot seem to take another step ourselves and we are told that He will gather us up. He will bear us. He will keep us. He'll carry us. Sometimes we're so worried about being strong and capable and able That we can't melt into the arms of our Savior and recognize Him as shepherd. He's your shepherd, beloved. He watches over you. He has promised to lead you to the place of a final rest in the Father. He has promised to feed you every step of the way and He has promised to protect you. I know... Sometimes life can get pretty ugly. But oh, that ultimate protection that is ours, being kept in his arms, providing for us, protecting us, feeding us, carrying us. And he takes the responsibility of delivering you safely home. I've heard Christians over the years worry out loud, will I make it? Will I keep the faith? Will I be able to endure? Well, that's the wrong question. The question is, will he endure? Will he give up his charge? Will he forsake the sheep that have been given to him that he sought out and gave his blood for? Will he somehow fumble the ball? And No, he won't. We trust our shepherd We don't trust ourselves. You and I, we are going to mess it up. There are times when our faith will be so shaky 
and so weak and we'll lose any sense that the the real hope that's before us is still there and yet our Christ cannot fail because he's the promised shepherd and he'll take full responsibility for those that have been given to him. We have to trust in him and not in ourselves. How little we consider him in all of these offices. How little we understand the nature of his care for us and the provision for us. Because we're unaware that that's the purpose for which he was sent. Herod gives testimony to it as he goes back and has them dig out those Old Testament quotations. And how much about him is revealed to us in this way uniquely within the Christmas story. Now, I would love to just stop there because the concept of Jesus being able to take us up in his arms and carry us safely through is is one that I just cherish. I love to linger there, but we're not done with the descriptions in this passage yet. He is Jesus. He is Emmanuel. He is King. He is Christ. He is Shepherd. But there is another designation for him here. He is God's Son. God calls him my Son. I want the text again to bring the designation to us. After Herod consulted with the scribes and the priests about where the Christ would, the, the Messiah would be born, we read this. And I know it's a little small. Bear with me. So then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Well, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. You kind of wonder what Mary thought about that, huh? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that is fascinating. Out of Egypt, I called my son. We just don't have time to tease this out as far as we need to. but, But we have an incredible demonstration here of how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy and how we need to read those things in the light of his coming. If you were to stand in a dark tunnel with a bright light shining in your eyes in front of you, you wouldn't be able to make out a lot of detail around you. You could catch some things, but, but the light would mainly eclipse what's going on there. But if you, and as you walk toward that light, you would see various things, you would see them illuminated, they would make sense to you. But once you reach the light and you turn around and you look back down the tunnel, you'd be able to see everything clearly. It would really be opened up to you. You'd get full sight of it. Well, that's the way it is with the Bible and with progressive revelation. The Old Testament saints were looking toward the day of the Messiah. As Jesus says Abraham did in John 8 when he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They were looking forward and they could see the light. They could see some things, but they couldn't make out all the detail. It's why Peter tells us later that that the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be brought to us searched and inquired carefully, trying to discern or figure out who was being referred to by these prophecies and when they would all come to pass. Uh, They had light 
but they were looking into it and not like we can today from this side of the cross looking back. And so you come to this passage in Hosea 11.1 where it's this word. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Well, in Hosea 11.1, that is specifically a reference to the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian captivity. So how does it get applied to Jesus in this place? Matthew says, well, that was there, but now this scripture's actually been fulfilled. It was a true historical event back then but an event that was meant to foreshadow something about the Christ that was to come. And Jesus is the one who's going to make the connection for us later in his own preaching and teaching. Throughout the Old Testament, I'm just going to give you one example of this. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the, God's favorite designations for Israel is that it is his vine or his planting. He refers to it as the vine. Let me go back to Hosea 10.1. So just a chapter before this citation out of Hosea 11. And this is what God says. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Now here that's a condemning statement because the more the fruit increased, the more altars he built. In other words, the more that Israel prospered, the more it went off into idolatry. And as his country improved, he improved his pillars. But then Jesus says something startling using this vine imagery, absolutely startling in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. Hmm. True vine as opposed to what vine? The only other vine in scripture, Israel. I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. You get that? Yes, Israel was God's vine, true enough, his planting. But Israel was a type, a shadow of the real thing, the fulfillment of which is Jesus. He's the true vine. And so the bottom line is people don't need to be, and this is a problem in modern evangelicalism today, people don't need to be related to Israel for salvation to go back to Judaistic roots. They need to be in Christ, who's the true vine, which is what Israel was pointing to all along. And so in this passage, Matthew starts to unpack for us by showing how it is that Israel's deliverance from Egypt was as divine and as amazing and as miraculous as it was, was just a means to set the stage for the coming of the Messiah. And in due time, it was God's son, Jesus the Christ, who would be called out of Egypt. It would be the son who fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies and promises and pictures. And so in the, in, I don't want you to miss this, because in the Christmas story, What you've just been given in this short account is the key to unlocking all of Scripture as it's delivered to us. This is a key of inestimable value. How do we read our Old Testament and all of those rules and regulations and the historical accounts and the details about the tabernacle and the temple and the priest garments and the sacrifices and the rituals? We read them in the light of the Son of God who has come and fulfilled them. Now you begin to understand how your Bible fits together. And it fits together from the Christmas story. He's the one who tells us that he is the son. And as the son, he fulfills all that God has given. It's amazing. And so Jesus, Emmanuel, King, Christ, Shepherd, the son, 
And then we've got just one more. As the narrative continues, we're met with one last designation. And of all of them, this may be the most difficult, the most obscure, and also the most overlooked. Let me read it to you out of Matthew 2. So then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's little question that out of the five Old Testament references that Matthew's given to us in this section we've been reading, this is the most controversial. Why? Well, if you have a concordance and you've ever looked up the term Nazarene, The one problem you'll have is it doesn't appear in any Old Testament prophecy. Well, that's a little difficult. So what in the world was Matthew about? What was the Holy Spirit saying through him at this moment? The previous ones were direct quotes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 7 about the virgin conceiving and bringing forth uh, a, a son whose name would be Emmanuel. Michael five, what, Micah 5 was about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. We get that. Hosea 11 was about him being called out of Egypt. We can get that. And then there's Jeremiah's prophecy that we just read about, about Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more, because they've been murdered by Herod in the execution. But when we come to this one, we, we've got a problem Because there's no specific passage in the Old Testament that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. One who hails from the town of Nazareth. That's what a Nazarene means. Some people have confused this with the term Nazarite, but they aren't the same. Um, Nazarite had to do with a particular vow that you took, and Jesus isn't referred to as a Nazarite either. But he's not a Nazarene, somebody who comes from Nazareth. So what are we to do with this? Well, there's three main answers that are usually given. I'm going to camp on one because I think it does the best job of putting this together for us. And bear with me. This will all come to fruit by the time we're done. And a vital clue is found in the wording that Matthew uses here. Notice what he says in verse 23. Let me bring it up. He went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called Nazarene. Now, this Nazarene issue was interesting. Some of you will remember through reading in John chapter 1 that when Philip believed who Jesus was, he went and he found his brother Nathaniel. And he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you remember what Nathaniel's reply was? He wasn't really uh, overjoyed at this idea. In fact, he chided Philip. He said, can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, well, come and see. Now, why would he say something like that? It was pretty snarky. And I'm given to snark, so I know how that works. And that's, that's snarky. In short going back to what we've looked at already, if we thought Bethlehem was podunk, Nazareth was Bethlehem's podunk. It was even worse. It wasn't on the radar. Nazareth, in fact, as a city, is such a backwater 
It's never once mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Apocrypha. It's never mentioned in any of the documents between the Old Testament and the New Testament period. It is as unremarkable a place as you can possibly get in Judea. And in other words, to call somebody a Nazarene would be to say they were truly a nobody from nowhere. It was a euphemism. It wasn't just the name of a town. It was the way you referred to them. Like when Paul was at Corinth, if you referred to somebody as a Corinthian, what you were saying was they were a gambler, a drunkard, and a womanizer. They were the low of the low. And if you referred to someone as a Nazarene, what you were saying was, man, this guy is from, he is nobody from nowhere. He is the nothing of nothings. If Galilee was considered a, dumb, a slum district by those in Jerusalem, and it was because it had a lot of Gentile inhabitants as well, people in Jerusalem looked down. That Galilee was on the other side of the tracks. That was true for all the disciples. They came from Galilee. Well, if that was true for the people in Jerusalem, how they looked down on, on Galilee, the Galileans looked down on the Nazarenes. There's always one class lower, right? And the lowest class were the Nazarenes. So what of Matthew's appeal to the prophets? He, he, he says, well, wait a minute, this was written by the prophets, and more than likely he was using Nazarene as a figure of speech that his first readers would have recognized as summing up any number of the prophetic references to the fact that Jesus would be, the Messiah would be a nobody from nowhere. Like that in Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a root out of dry ground. Not out of a a thriving place, but out of a desert place, a, a backwoods place, dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He, he was a nobody. No beauty that we should desire him. He didn't have any of the normal attractions. He was despised. He was thought lowly of. He was treated as though he was nothing. And rejected by men, and so a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. They wouldn't make eye contact with him the way we wouldn't make eye contact with the beggar in the street. In other words, there's no specific text that says he would be, quote, a Nazarene, but there were all sorts of texts that would mark him out as being without standing and without any, with utter humility. A man with no human esteem, a nobody from nowhere. This is in Jesus' day, you would have referred to that type of a person as a Nazarene, even if they didn't come from that city. And such, beloved, is our Savior. He hailed from there and he wore the label. Having cast off all the riches and the glories of heaven. Setting aside what had been the eternal angelic adoration of who he was that surrounded him day and night forever and ever. Not counting his own deity as something to be waved in front of other people's noses. He became a Nazarene for you and for me. He saves nobodies. He saves the weak, the unimportant, the poor, the intellectually dim, the ungifted, the normal. He saves people like me. He saves people like you. So in Philippians, Paul can write, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. When I get there, I'm going to make sure everybody knows I'm equal to the Father. No, instead he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death On a cross. Or as Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. For our sake he would be called a Nazarene. He would number himself with the least of all humanity. It's the glory of Christmas. Jesus, Emmanuel, King, Christ, Shepherd, Son, Nazarene. What a portrait. What a portrait. Nothing so fully unfolds the true wonder of Christmas and the Incarnation as does the way our Savior is portrayed in these short verses. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he shall be called Emmanuel, because he is in in truth God with us. This Jesus, Emmanuel, has come to be our glorious king. He's anointed by God to fulfill all of his offices, all of his duties. And he will shepherd his own with the greatest and tenderest care and compassion and divine loving kindness. For he's not just God's emissary, he's God's only begotten son. Come to those of us who are the very least of all mankind, suffering all humility, taking our sins upon himself that he might raise us up together with himself in eternal glory. That's the Christmas story. Oh, come, let us adore him. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe. In the midst of our hustle and bustle and commercialization, in the midst of running around trying to buy presents, get things done, be a good parents, good friends, good family, here is Jesus in all of his resplendent glory. And all of it portrayed for us before he is even able to talk, as far as we know, all of this being written about him while he's still an infant. I can't for a moment begin to pretend what it must have been like for him to to have these things dawn on his soul, for his parents and siblings to work through it. But we can stand here today in the aftermath. We can stand this side of the cross and look back at it all and say, oh, what a wondrous Redeemer He is. How He saves us from our sins. How He brings us back into right relationship with You. How He desires to rule us in absolute wisdom and love and care in every way. How he's anointed by you and filled with the spirit that he might do all these things. And, and how he, he is our great shepherd. When nobody else cares for us, he cares for us. In every way and, and meets us in our every need. He is your own dear son. And he's one of us. A Nazarene. And we stand in awe. We give you praise and glory for him. In his name, amen.